Chapter 12 of Afloat on the Ohio, an historical pilgrimage of a thousand miles in a skiff, from Redstone to Cairo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Mosley. Afloat on the Ohio by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter 12 In a Fog, The Big Sandy, Rainy Weather, Operatic Gypsies, An Ancient Tavern. Ironton, Ohio, Saturday, May 19th. When we turned in last night, it was refreshingly cool. Heavy clouds were scurrying across the face of the moon. By midnight, a copious rain was falling. Wind gusts were flapping our roof, and a sudden drop in temperature rendered sadly inadequate all the clothing we could muster into service. We slept late in consequence, and after rigging a windbreak with the rubber blankets, during breakfast huddled around the stove, which had been brought in to replace Pilgrim under the fly. When, at half-past nine, we pushed off, our houseboat neighbors thrust their heads from the window and waved us farewell. A dense fog hung like a cloud over land and river. There was a stiff northeast wind, which we avoided by seeking the Ohio shore, where the high hills formed a break. There, too, the current was swift and carried us down right merrily, Shattered by the wind, great banks of fog rolled upstream, sometimes enveloping us so as to narrow our view to a radius of a dozen rods. Again, through the rifts, giving us momentary glimpses on the right of rich green hills, towering dark and steep above us, iridescent with browns and grays and many shades of green, of whitewashed cabins, single or in groups, standing out with startling distinctness from somber backgrounds, of houseboats, many-hued, moored to willowed banks or bolstered high upon shaly beaches, of the opposite bottom with its corrugated cliff of clay, and now and then a slowly puffing steamboat cautiously feeling its way through the chilling gloom, a monster to be avoided by little Pilgrim and her crew, for the possibility of being run down in a fog is not pleasant. To contemplate. On board one of these steamers was a sorry company, apparently a Sunday school excursion. Children in gala dress huddled in swarms on the lee of the great smokestacks, and in imagination we heard their teeth chatter as they glided by us and in another moment were engulfed in the mist. We catch sight for a moment through a cloud crevasse of Cerrado, the last town in West Virginia, a small sawmilling community stuck upon the edge of the clay cliff, with the broad level bottom stretching out behind like a prairie. A giant railway bridge here spans the Ohio, a weird impressive thing as we sweep under it in the swirling current and crane our necks to see the great stone piers lose themselves in the cloud. But the Big Sandy River, 315 miles, which divides West Virginia and Kentucky, was wholly lost to view, 
In an opening a few moments later, however, we had a glimpse of the dark line of her valley, below which the hills again descend to the Ohio's bank. Catlettsburg, the first Kentucky town, is at the junction and extends along the foot of the ridge for a mile or two, apparently not over two blocks wide, with a few outlying shanties on the shoulders of the uplands. Washington was surveying here, on the Big Sandy, in 1770, and entered for one John Fry, 2,084 acres, round the site of Louisa, a dozen miles up the river which was the first survey made in Kentucky, but a few months later than Boone's first advent as a hunter on the dark and bloody ground, and five years before the first permanent settlement in the state. Washington deserves to be remembered as a Kentucky pioneer. We have not only steamers to avoid. They appear to be unusually numerous about here, but snags as well. With care, the whereabouts of a steamer can be distinguished as it steals upon us from the superior whiteness of its column of exhaust, penetrating the bank of dark gray fog, and occasionally the echoes are awakened by the burly roar of its whistle, which in times like this acts as a foghorn. But the snag is an insidious enemy not revealing itself until we are within a rod or two, and then there is a quick cry of warning from the stern sheets, hard a port, or starboard quick, and only a strong side pull, aided by W's paddle, sends us free from the jagged, branching mass, which might readily have swamped poor Pilgrim, had she taken it at full tilt. At Ashland, Kentucky, 320 miles, we stopped for supplies. There are 6,000 inhabitants here, with some good buildings and a fine broad stone wharf, but it is rather a dingy place. The steamer Bonanza had just landed. On the double row of flaggings leading up to the summit of the bank were two ant-like processions of Kentucky folk. One leisurely climbing townwards with their bags and bundles, the other hurrying down with theirs to the boat, which was ringing its bell, blowing off steam, and in other ways creating an uproar which seemed to turn the heads of the negro rustabouts and draymen, who bustled around with a great chatter and much false motion. The railway may be doing the bulk of the business, but it does it unostentatiously. The steamboat, makes far more disturbance in the world and is a finer spectacle dozens of boys are lounging at the wharf foot watching the lively scene with fascinated eyes probably every one of them stoutly possessed of an ambition akin to that of my young friend in the cheshire bottom a rainstorm broke the fog a cold raw miserable rain no clothing we could don appeared to suffice against the chill, and so at last we pitched camp upon the Ohio shore, three miles above the Ironton Wharf, 325 miles. It is a muddy, dreary nest up here, among the dripping willows. Just behind us on the slope is the inclined track of the Norfolk and Western 
railway transfer down which trains are slid to a huge slip and thence ferried over the river into kentucky above that on a narrow terrace is an ordinary railway line and still higher up a slippery clay bank lies the cottage-strewn bottom which stretches on into ironton thirteen thousand inhabitants we were a sorry-looking party at lunch this noon hovering over the smoking stove which was set in the tent door with a windscreen in front and moist bedding hung all about in the vain hope of drying it in the feeble heat and sorrier still through the long afternoon as each encased in a sleeping bag we sat upon our cots circling around the stove w reading to us between chattering teeth from Barry's When a Man's Single. "'Tis good Scottish weather we're having, but somehow our thoughts could not rest on thrums, and we were, for the nonce, a wee bit miserable. Dinner degenerated into a smoky bite, and then at dusk there was a council of war. The air hangs thick with moisture, our possessions are in various stages from damp to sopping wet, and efforts at drying over the little stove are futile under such conditions. It was demonstrated that there was not bed-clothing enough in such an emergency as this. Indeed, an inspection of that which was merely damp revealed the fact that but one person could be made comfortable tonight our bachelor doctor volunteered to be that one so we bade him godspeed and with toilet bag in hand i led my little family up a tortuous path so slippery in the rain that we were obliged in our muddy climb to cling to grass clumps and bushes and thus wet and bedraggled did we sally forth upon the ironton bottom seeking shelter for the night Fortunately, we had not far to seek. A kindly family took us in, despite our gruesome aspect and our unlikely story. For what manner of folk are we that go traipsing about in a skiff in such weather as this, coming from nobody knows where and camping a night in the muddy river bottoms? Instead of sending us on in the drenching rain to a hotel three miles down the road, or offering us a ticket on the associated charities, these blessed people opened their hearts and their beds to us without question, and what more can weary pilgrims pray for? Scioteville, Ohio, Sunday, May 20th. After breakfast and settling our modest score, we rejoined the doctor, and at ten o'clock pulled out again being bidden good-bye at the landing by the children of our hostess, who had sent us by them a bottle of fresh milk as a parting gift. It had rained almost continuously throughout the night. Today we have a dark gray sky with fickle winds, a charming color study all along our path, the reds and grays and yellows of the high clay banks which edge the reciprocating bottoms, the browns and yellows of hillside fields, the deep greens of forest verdure, the 
vivid white of bankside cabins and in the background of each new vista bold headlands veiled in blue w and the boy are in the stern sheets wrapped in blankets for there is a smart chill in the air and we at the oars pull lively for warmth in our twisting course sometimes we have a favoring breeze and the doctor rears the sail but it is a brief delight for the next turn brings the wind in our teeth and we set to the blades with renewed energy in the main we make good time the sugarloaf hills with their castellated escarpments go marching by with stately sweep greenup courthouse three hundred thirty four miles is a bright little kentucky county seat well built in the feet of thickly forested uplands at the lower end of the village the little sandy enters through a wooded dale which near the mouth opens into a broad meadow not many miles below is a high sloping beach picturesquely bestrewn with gigantic boulders which have in ages past rolled down from the hilltops above here among the rocks we again set up a rude screen from the still piercing wind and each wrapped in a gay blanket lunch as operatic gypsies might in a romantic glen enjoying mightily our steaming chocolate and the warmth of our friendly stove for dessert taking a merry scamper for flowers over the ragged ascent from whence the boulders came everywhere about is the trumpet creeper but not yet in bloom the indian turnip is in blossom here and so the smaller solomon seal yellow spikes of toad flax blue and pink phlox glossy may apple high up on the hillside the fire pink and winter green and down by the sandy shore great beds of blue wild lupin and occasionally stately spikes of the familiar moth mullein with the temperature falling rapidly and a drizzling rain taking the starch out of our enthusiasm we early sought a camping ground for miles along here springs ooze from the base of a high clay bank walling in the wide and rocky ohio beach and dry spots are few and far between we found one however a half mile above little scioto river three hundred forty six miles with driftwood enough to furnish us for years and the beach thick strewn with fossils of a considerable variety of small bivalves which latter greatly delighted the doctor and the boy who have brought enough specimens to the tent door to stock a college museum footnote two miles up the little scioto pine creek enters perhaps a mile and a half up this creek was in seventeen seventy one a mingo town called horsehead bottom which cuts some figure in border history as a nest of indian marauders dinner over the crew hauled pilgrim under cover and within prepared for her sailing master a cosy bed with the entire ship's stock of sleeping bags and blankets w the boy and i then started off to find quarters in scyotoville one thousand inhabitants 
which lies just below the river's mouth, here a dozen rods wide. Scrambling up the slimy bank, through a maze of thorn trees, brambles, and sycamore scrubs, we gained the fertile bottom above, all luscious with tall grasses bespangled with wild red roses and the showy pentstemon. The country road leading into the village is some distance inland, but at last we found it just beyond a patch of Indian corn waist-high, and followed it through a covered bridge and down to a little hotel at the lower end of town. A quaint old-fashioned house, the Scioteville Tavern, with an inner gallery looking out into a small garden of peaches, apples, pears, plums, and grapes, a famous grape country this, by the way. In our room, opening from the gallery, is an antique high-post bedstead. Everywhere about are similar relics of an early day, in keeping with the air of serene old age which pervades the hostelry is the white-haired landlady herself, in well-starched apron, white cap, and gold-rimmed glasses. She benignly sits, rocking by the office stove, her feet on the fender, reading Wallace's Prince of India, and looking, for all the world, as if she had just stepped out of some old portrait of well, of a tavern-keeping Martha Washington. End of chapter 12 Recording by Bill Mosley, Bernardo, Texas, USA